My name is Ben Zulsdorf. I'm the high school director. I'm a little, even as I just start off, I'm a little emotional just because, um, as Ben had prayed earlier this week, um, has been very, uh, very tough. And um, as he mentioned, the, the loss of Lucas Talbot, the suicide. And um, uh, I'm thankful, our students, I'm so glad you guys are here. And um, every week, yeah, our high school was with us. And um, we, we talk about hope, we talk about Jesus, we talk about goodness because it matters. And so um, I just want us to be aware of the impact that Jesus has um, on our every, everyday life, every moment. We're going to be talking about that today. Um, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We're in what is, uh, what is in the Bible and why. Um, and the Summer in the Scripture series, we're digging into the Word of God. We're digging into Scripture. We've been overviewing um, large chunks of Scripture at a time cultivating uh, a sense of importance to get after it and read it on our own. And um, last week, Danny um, introed uh, this two kind of part series that we're doing in the, we're in the epistles. So the epistles mean letters. Um, it's the chunk of the Bible right in the middle. Um, after the Gospels, it is Romans uh, through Jude, 21 books total. And these letters were written to specific churches, specific cultures, um, in the Roman world. This is what they did. This is how um, they were addressing particular issues. So we have to contextualize things. Um, last week, Danny brought up one of the main functions of the epistles, which was talking about grace. And I hope you hear this. Grace is yours to have. It's freely given, unearned, unmerited love of God given to us through Jesus. And I want you to keep that, keep that right in the forefront because that is very important um, for what I'm going to be talking about today. That definition matters, grace that God has freely given us and is working itself out. And I'm going to be talking about the second part of that, and that is righteousness. So uh, this is my working, uh, I've titled the sermon, by the way, The Way of Righteousness, The Way of Righteousness, which is actually really the way of grace because our own righteousness, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a second. But here's my working definition that I want us to hold today, okay? This is righteousness. Righteousness is grace working itself out in thought, word, and deed. Great. Righteousness is grace working itself out inside of us in thought, word, and deed, a posture of mind, heart, and body, and how it influences our whole being. And I'm going to unpack that in three different tiers. Here's the three tiers. We're going to talk about the direction of righteousness, the rhythms of righteousness, and the posture of righteousness. Before I get into any of this, though, we've been watching these Bible project videos to kind of help shape how we can engage Scripture. These videos are so, we use them in youth ministry all the time. They're so good. This video talks about how to understand and read Scripture through a historical context lens. Near the end of the Bible are 21 letters written to communities of Jesus' followers throughout the ancient Roman Empire. Letters? Like, I'm reading someone's mail. Yeah. The letters are written by the apostles, that is, the people that Jesus appointed to spread the good news about his kingdom. And they wrote to Jesus' followers living in different cities around the Roman world. These letters were all written in a style called prose discourse. Now, if I'm reading a letter that wasn't written to me, then there's likely a lot of background information that's assumed but not mentioned. Yeah, exactly. And the letters in the Bible are no different. Okay, so let's talk about how to read the New Testament letters in historical context. So there are three levels of historical context to keep in mind when reading the New Testament letters. The first is how all the letters fit into the larger storyline of the scriptures. Right, so this story begins with God creating humanity as his partners to rule creation with him. But we choose to rule on our own terms, leading to violence, exile, and death. 
But God promises a guy named Abraham that life and blessing will spread to all nations through him and his descendants to renew God's vision for humanity. And Jesus said he came to bring that promise to its fulfillment through his life, death and resurrection. Right, and so the apostles saw themselves as heralds announcing the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus. Like the apostle Paul, when he wrote to the house churches in Rome about the good news, he said his job was to summon people of all nations to give their allegiance to Jesus, the exalted king of the world. That's a bold thing to say to people living in the capital city of the Roman empire whose allegiance is supposed to be to Caesar. Yeah, and that actually brings us to the second important context for understanding the New Testament letters, the culture of the Roman Empire in the first century. So Rome ruled all of these territories around the Mediterranean Sea. And they built their empire by conquering and enslaving their enemies and then imposing heavy taxes. The emperor and his small circle controlled all of the power and wealth, and they knew how to deal with people who threatened the social order. Most people lived without much money or stability. And Roman culture had a very clear hierarchy. Men from important families with money and education could move ahead in society. But women, slaves, children, and the poor were always at a disadvantage and treated as inferior. Yet, in a community of people who followed Jesus, everyone was treated with love and equal dignity. Yeah, in Roman life, it was unheard of for people of high status to associate with people below them. But the apostles said that through Jesus, God had given the gift of his love to everyone without regard to their status. So in that context, these letters were countercultural and they broke down barriers between people. Exactly. And so that brings us to the last level of context, the situational context of each letter. You mean the specific issues in the church of a city that prompted the writing of the letter in the first place? Yeah, like Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. It's tempting to read this letter and focus on all the important theology and then overlook why he wrote this letter. Why did he write it? Well, towards the end, he talks about how Jewish food laws and sacred days have become controversial between Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. Which was creating divisions in the church. And if you read carefully, you can see that some Christians with higher social status were treating Jewish followers of Jesus with contempt. And Jewish Christians were returning the favor, condemning the non-Jews as second-rate followers of Jesus. Exactly. And so all of the ideas and theology in the first part of the letter were crafted to address those very problems. Paul acknowledges that the Roman Christians have big differences in culture, theology, and social status, but he wants them to realize that they are unified by their faith in Jesus, who is the real center of their church. Okay, great. But if that letter was written to someone else, then what should I get out of it? I mean, I don't live in ancient Rome. Well, in these letters, we see the apostles challenging and transforming every part of their first century culture and life with the good news about King Jesus. And by watching them, we gain wisdom about how that same good news can transform our culture as well. Now, there's one more helpful step to take in reading the New Testament letters, and that's learning how to follow the flow of thought from the letter's beginning all the way to its end. And that's what we'll look at next. So good. Bible Project videos are so awesome. I highly encourage you to check more of them out as you read and get into Scripture. So rich in content. With this video, I want us to watch this for two reasons. One, we're talking about Romans today. We're going to talk about a passage in Romans. 
Second part is that they go into how Rome worked at that time and the church and what were the issues at hand. And hopefully you caught this. There was some serious tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was some serious tension between the Jews and the Gentiles, and you throw into that additionally this system of hierarchy that existed, right? You had these Roman elites, you had this equestrian class, which were like the knights, like the people who did battle, and those were like minuscule percentages of the total population of Rome. And the most, most people were either slaves or uh, freed, um, uh, they, were, they were freed poor persons, essentially. They were, they, were, they were released from that bondage of slavery, but they were poor living in that space. So you can imagine there's all these different hierarchies that are causing uh, tension, how to live together. We experience that today, right? Like all, all the differences that we have um, between not just even Jews and Gentiles, this, like this is like, that's still a thing, I guess, kind of today. But like, this was like just, the world they lived in was like a crazy, it's like, it's like Republicans and Democrats living together, or it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like non-maskers and maskers figuring out how to live your life together too, right? Like we have all these different ways that we're trying to figure out how to live together. And this was the reality of the early church. So you can imagine all the conflict and tension that was happening. And at the same time, there's also this reality where right when the early church was starting, the Jews were actually evicted. Uh, the Emperor Claudius at the time, he had removed Jews from Rome and then the next emperor let them come back inside. And when they came back, the church had kind of already started to take shape and was growing. So you have these, like, this like, posture of doing church that is one way um, very Hellenistic and paganistic. Right? These people, the Gentiles, they're like, this is, this is what we're putting aside to live into the body of Christ together. And the Jews come back with Torah and the law. And there's this conflict that happens. And so in Rome, this is, this is the conflict that's happening, this tension of how do we deal with these multiple cultures. And at the heart of that, Paul wants to address, uh, at the beginning of his letter, he says, the purpose of this whole thing is to unite the church together, to bring unity, to bring peace amongst this chaotic groupings of people that are trying to figure out how to live life together. And what Paul does is he first takes uh, the first few chapters and he addresses sin at large, okay? And he says that, uh, he, he says, no matter where you fit in these categories, whether you are of the pagan world or the Jewish world, your measuring stick in which you're saying, this is what it means to follow God, isn't working. It's not lining up. And so he kind of equalizes the playing field, the first three chapters. Then he, in chapters four and five, he says that, uh, makes this case for the justification that Christ has given us. Okay, so here's sin, here's our measuring stick, and then the justification that Jesus freely gives both groups of people, the whole church together, and then from there he unpacks that further. And so before, I, I wanna talk for a second about um, some of these ideas of, of boundaries, okay? So Paul gives like a clear boundary. Here's actually the text. We're gonna have to read the text first. So follow along with me. This is Romans 6, one through four. Uh, the first slide is one through four. We're gonna read through one through 14. So you can read along with me. If you have a Bible, please open up to this as well. So this is what it says. All this is happening, convoluted culture, trying to figure out life together. This is what he says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. 
I'm going to keep going. Hang with me for a little bit longer. This is so good. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. One more section, we're almost finished. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Okay, nice job, guys. Give yourself a little round of applause for reading through 14 verses. (laughs) We're gonna unpack... uh, highlights these sections together. Um, so to start this off, I want to reiterate that section. Danny had brought up this idea that the, they were very, the church needed to know, okay, listen, through Jesus, we have been given grace in full. And then the conflict with all these groupings was how do we actually live that out? Because it matters how we live. It matters how we live. And so you had, for a second, you had this idea that grace is so stinking good and awesome. And uh, we, we can, we're just loved. That's how it works. And so um, what happens is that we can sometimes take advantage of that reality because we're just going to be forgiven anyways. We can kind of do whatever we wanted to. And this is a reality that the early church was wrestling with as well. They thought that, man, God loves us so much that uh, we, can, we can just kind of, we're okay, we're covered. And Paul's like, no, this is not what that means. There's a way in which you actually posture yourself to receive grace, and that's the wrong direction, Okay. You're probably wondering why I just put this line here. This, by the way, this is the greatest youth ministry tool of all time, okay? We use this in everything, okay? We use this for games. We use this for boundaries, for games, okay? Just the other week, we played Steal the Bacon, and I watched Emma Allen drag a freshman boy across the line with the towel, like, on his face to steal it. It was so good. Um, we, we, we use this stuff for everything. Now, I want to talk about this idea. When we hear the word righteousness, sometimes we can feel like almost constrained or conflicted. Like, it sounds like very pious and kind of posh. I live righteously, right? Like, but the the point of understanding righteousness is actually how we flesh out the goodness of God in our lives, in mind, heart, and body, in all thoughts and all pieces. And so, um, so what Paul does into the Romans, right? They're talking about this idea of using grace. And Paul says, no, we, we, we don't just keep freely sinning. Go and go to that next slide, Micah. Right at the beginning here. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. And Paul puts up a line. Now, I want to make this really clear, okay? So I want to talk about this I want to imagine this side being righteous living, God working himself in our lives, and this side being unrighteousness. Righteousness, unrighteousness, new life, old life, okay? So what this is not, though, I want you to hear this very clear. This is not like a, a salvation talk, okay? If you, uh, you are loved, God is, Jesus has died for you, you are in, if you say yes to Jesus, that's it. And so this has to deal with how we live that up. This is not about your acceptance by God. God says you're accepted, you're his, okay? We, we better make sure that we just clarify that out, okay, as I bounce back and forth. So 
Paul makes this distinct line, and he says, no, we don't get to keep on going sinning. We have to work this life out of righteousness, okay? We don't want to live in the old way of things. We live in the new way of things. When I was talking to Will Kilgore, Danny, Pastor Danny's husband, about this text, he brought up two really great analogies. He said, Ben, I heard a pastor preach on this, so I'm, I'm totally like, whoever that pastor is, I'm quoting them, quoting Will, okay? Different t- t- uh, quote-ception, all right? So, um, so what we have is, he said that, he said that, um, he said that grace is like a fire extinguisher. Like, you don't go and set your house on fire to see if the fire extinguisher is going to work, right? Like, like all right, let's, let's just make sure this is good to go, start a fire, Oh, all right, we're good to go. Like he also said, and then he says this, he's like, he's like, it's also like an airbag. Like you don't like test the airbag out. And be like I want to see this airbag works in like total your car and just see if it like hits you in the face. Like you don't do that with those things. He says like same thing with sin. We don't get to use grace in that kind of way. It's like it's just a fault. We have to live into a specific direction. And so Paul is saying that there's actually a direction of grace. There's a way for us to live out grace, and that is this way of righteousness. And I, I think for us, what's fascinating about this is too, is I, I put this line here because I think as Christians, we sometimes do this. We toe the line. We try to figure out, okay, man, like, I'm good with God. I just have, I just have a little anger towards that person. I'm not real, just a little bit of hatred. Like, I'm kind of, for, a little forgiveness, but like, I gotta hold, I can't hold on to that. Just a little bit of gossip, just a little bit of substance in my life. Like we tell this line as close as possible. Like I'm just good. I'm just good enough. And meanwhile, God's like, God's like, no, like there's a whole wellspring that I want you to live into. There's a whole way of living of righteousness that we get to enter into. And so the first point, the direction of righteousness is the way of grace. This is the thing. We're going to talk about this deeply right now. There's no, like nothing inside of me or us. We can't like cultivate like righteousness on our own time, no matter how much we try. But like God can work that out in us. That's what he does. That's what grace does. And it propels us into the fullness that he has for us. So the direction of righteousness is the way of grace. Okay. So the second point. Rhythms of righteousness. Going over to the next slide. For if we have been, this is the, there's two sections I want to highlight here. I want you to notice the, the words bolded and underlined. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay, the word united. And it's united in death and united in resurrection. There's two things. We're united with Christ, made one with him in his death and his resurrection. Hold on to that for a second. Go ahead and go to the next slide. At the end of this other section, it says, highlight this part. So, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he can no longer die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Death no longer has mastery over him. United with Christ to the point where death no longer has mastery over us. I want to give you guys a secret, okay? The worship team has a secret tool. And you would actually, you're not going to believe this, okay? There's something that happens inside of our in-ears. When we play worship music, the band has, throughout the whole song, it's, it's a beautiful sound. You ready for this? This is what it sounds like. Is that the most beautiful thing you ever heard? So let it hang just for a second, because this is what happens in our heads for three minutes at a time. Every song. Uh, uh, yep. Feel good, right? It's amazing. Okay, so that, that is what every of the musicians have playing in their head along with other instrumentations. That's the click track. 
The click track is what keeps everything together. It keeps the band united together. And any musician uh, that seeks to have uh, more than just like a beginner novice experience as you kind of enter into being uh, a more mature musician, you start to play to a click. And at first, it's really, really, really brutal. Like you're like, you're rushing it above it and it's just this clacking in your head. Like, like you just like, this is terrible. This is the worst thing ever. And it's really humbling because then you know, like when you're off and if you're off with all of us, everyone just kind of looks at you like you missed the click. And so it's like super, it's brutal. But then over time, what happens is that click starts to tune. It becomes internal, a part of your musicianship. And you just, it just kind of fades into the mix. And it just becomes natural. You don't even feel like it's there at times. So this is the point of this whole thing. Go back to that previous slide. When we're united with Christ, we're united with Christ, and then to the point where death only has mastery, this is the thing. This way of righteousness, when we're towing the line here, oftentimes we have these deep, habitual things that we just can't let go. Like, I know I shouldn't gossip as much as I do. I know I need to embrace forgiveness. I know I need to stop having so much self-loathing. I know I need to release that substance, whatever that looks like. I just can't do it. And it's small little steps because grace is working itself out into us. And so you take just one moment, right? So you have this moment. You're with your friends and you're like, okay, like maybe gossip's your thing, okay? I just really want to gossip right now. This person's so brutal. This is awful. And then you have this moment where the Holy Spirit says, don't do it. Don't participate in it. And you're like, oh, okay. Man, that was really hard not to do that, but I did do it. Okay, and you start to slowly shift away. And then next week, maybe it's a little easier and a little easier. And all of a sudden, you don't even have that inside of you to, to try to tear somebody up to make yourself feel better. You just do it. And it becomes internal a part of you. See, this side of the line, when we talk about unrighteousness, it's oftentimes fears, insecurities, things that make ourselves elevated over anyone else. That's what kind of sin divides us from God and from each other. That's like every sin does that. All sin does that. And so it's actually protective posture about like, man, I'm so, I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'm insecure, I'm fearful. And so I want to make sure that I can like control that as opposed to being free and open and selfless and giving and knowing that I'm loved. And so these things that we do when we do that, like they have to take practice. And so we talk about reading scripture. We talk about Engaging community, we talk about worshiping. And at first, they're really hard practices. And you're like, I can only, oh man, this is like, this is challenging. It's hard for me to kind of internalize this. But soon enough, it becomes like that click track. It was really hard. It's really brutal. It's really corrective. But then it becomes as natural as breathing. Which, by the way, this is, uh, that is a statement from Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest. He talks about this idea of being so in tune with Christ that this is as natural as breathing. How cool is that? Like that we can actually have that and receive that. So the second aspect, the rhythms of righteousness is disciplines. It's those spiritual disciplines. It's those disciplines of heart, of mind, and body that allow us to become more like Christ in the way of righteousness over time, slowly but surely. I'm gonna give another example of this too. Say you're like, you're like at Costco, right? And you're like in line. So your thing is anger, uh, or like, you're like really irritated because I get angry at the long lines at Costco too. And so you're sitting at Costco and you have your stuff and your rotisserie chicken because those things are so good at Costco. And you're walking through the line and there's this long line and you're like getting so irritated because the person in front of you just can't quite get their stuff together. They don't have their card with them. It, it starts to, okay, you build this inside of you, but you have this moment where you go, Jesus is with me. 
I can live into grace. I don't have to be so angry and hatred. And this is what's cool about this. Then you, you go home, as opposed to being all worked up and upset because the line in front of you was really tight. And you actually are able to be kind of soft-hearted towards your family, and you're more present at dinner time, and you're more present with your kids, or you're more present with whatever you need to do because you actually took one moment to say, ah, Jesus is with me. I don't have to live like that right now. That's what the rhythms of righteousness do. The third, uh, the third element of this, go to the next slide, Micah, the posture of righteousness. I'm going to read this whole section the same way. Count yourselves. Go ahead and go back. Yeah, same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Talked about the direction of righteousness. We talked about the rhythms of righteousness. And this last thing is the posture of righteousness. And I realize that for some of you, right, you have some deep, you're carrying some deep stuff, abuse, some wounds. You don't, like, Ben, you don't know my story. You don't know what I'm carrying every day. I, all I can, it's all I can do to, like, not just, like, want to destroy that person who wrecked my life. And you're holding on to this piece. Like, you don't know what I wrestle with every, like, emotionally, my, my mental health is so, I have to have the substance. I can barely hang on without it. And you live in this space. You're like, I don't know what I, I don't know how to do that. And the whole time that you line up in this way, you're feeling this pull of this old life that keeps us in that space of fear. And the whole purpose of all this is not even like necessarily that we have to take these gradual, huge steps this direction. Because these things take time, especially like long-term habits, especially long-term abuse and long-term subject stuff. Like your stories matter and God sees you in them. But the posture that you can take, you don't have to move a single step if you just simply turn. And so the last posture of righteousness, the posture of righteousness is it's repentance. And repentance is not... It's, it's actually very simple. It repent, change the way you think, and you turn, you turn to Jesus. And you're not facing this direction. You're not facing the ways that you're falling short in your mistakes and all that swirling. You're facing Christ. You might not move for a while. But you might be like, okay, facing Jesus. I still can't let that go. I can't let, I just can't forgive that person. I just can't like let this substance go. I can't let this posture of self-loathing go. I just can't do it. But I'm facing Jesus. I'm declaring his hope. And when you do that over time, what will happen is that this will happen. The Holy Spirit will slowly pull you towards him because you're trusting in that story. You're trusting in the story that has happened since the beginning, right? Like this is, this is what Jesus is always doing with us. He's drawing us into a posture where grace becomes part of us. Because you can't change. I can't change on our own. And like Paul was so evident over and over again in the scriptures with that to anyone, whether you're Jew or Gentile, any measuring stick you have, you're going to fail. You're going to fall short. That's how it works. We put ourselves up to these sticks and we can't do, this is what cancel culture is, by the way, right? If you've noticed, cancel culture, like, works really well for people until those people canceling also get canceled. And then you're like, I don't, 
how is this, I don't understand, like, there's no forgiveness, you can't make, like, there's certain things that are, like, holding accountability that's needed, right, within the cancel culture movement, it's, like, bringing up, like, serious things with abuse and violence and all this kind of stuff, we need that accountability, but to say that you are just irredeemable, to say that you don't have a second chance, that is not gospel, that's not Jesus, that's not what he's about, we are, we, we get to declare forgiveness over ourselves when we make mistakes and for those who make mistakes, too, So this is why this is so important because we have to live into that space where grace will do its work over time. And if we start within ourselves, that changes our families and our friends. It changes how we see ourselves because when we start to live in that posture of repentance and turning to God, when we start to be free ourselves, we are able to be more patient, more kind, more faithful, more gentle, more self-controlled, the fruits of the spirit that Paul talks about towards those around us. That is how we get to live more when we're more free. We get to help other people also be free. That's what Jesus does, and it's such a cool thing. But you have to take just that step to turn and repent. And the part that also can be dangerous about this line even too is this idea, right? So maybe you're like, man, I'm good. I've been reading scripture. I don't have any substance in my life. I don't gossip at all. But you're, you're just leaning, you're like, but I know a lot of people who do those things. And you're looking backwards and you're, you become self-righteous. You become your own measuring stick and you're judging those who aren't where you're at. At least I do that. And, and it becomes dangerous when we realize that even if we feel like we're on this side, right, we're actually still, that posture itself just puts us right back, right back here. Jesus tells this story in Luke 18. He tells the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Tax collector was a bad thing to be back in that world. It was a bad thing. You took money from people, you supported the Roman Empire, and you were hated deeply because you were already poor and they were taking more money away from you to live. So there's a Pharisee who's got everything figured out because they're religious leaders and they know Torah and they follow it deeply. Torah's Old Testament, first five books, by the way. And they make sure that they know it, they lean into it, and they knew all the rules. And and so the Pharisee in a and a tax collector walk into a temple and they both posture themselves before the Lord. And the Pharisee, this is how he postures himself, right? Because the Pharisee's got all the answers figured out. So he's all way over here, right? Following Torah like a Pharisee always does. And he says, God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. That I don't, uh, I give a tenth of all I have. I'm not a robber, or a thief. I'm not I'm not this evil person and deem whoever that person might be for you today, right? I'm not like them. I've got this figured out. And meanwhile, you have a tax collector who gets on his knees. And he doesn't even look to God. He just sits. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, between those two, that is the posture. Why? He's on the side of the line. He's unrighteous. He's living fully because his posture is towards grace. In righteousness. This is what Christ desires for us. It's this posture, and it just simply begins wherever you might, wherever your measuring stick is, fine. Like, at the end of the day, Jesus is like, I don't, like, stop thinking like that. Like, that's not necessarily helpful. But what we can do is we can say, man, these are the ways that I've compromised myself, my character, where I've just decided I just can't get any better. That's not resurrecting life. That's not the posture that Jesus has for us. In the middle of that space, 
right? The tax collector is deemed righteous. Why? Because he's looking to Christ. He's looking to Jesus. And it's the looking, the simple look. Jesus, you can, you can change my heart, my mind. You can change my actions. The thing I've wrestled with for 10 years, you can change that. You can, you can do something different with that. You can make me more gracious and more kind and more forgiving and less gossipy and more quick to be forgiving. You, Jesus, can do that, and I can't do that on my own. And so the posture of repentance, it's just that simple turn. All this starts with that turn. And it matters how we live, and so we live into grace because all these postures, the direction of righteousness, the rhythms of righteousness, uh, the, the posture of righteousness, this shapes us because grace will do its work inside of us. It's not a question of whether or not will we receive that. We'll receive that gift today. So I'm going to end where we began. The righteousness is grace working itself out in thought, word, and deed. A posture of mind, posture of heart, posture of body. Our whole selves given to Jesus. Our whole selves. Our whole selves. And I want you to take a second. I'm going to invite the band to come out. They're going to, we're going to have a time to turn. We're going to have a time to turn towards Jesus right now in worship. I want to encourage you to sit in this space and to say, God, where have I just been okay with living, thinking, feeling the thing, actions that I've done that, that are just right on that line? I've just made peace with how that, that is, and I haven't fully said yes to your grace working itself out in every part of me. Maybe you wrestle with anger. Maybe you wrestle with uh, self-doubt. Maybe you wrestle with substance. Maybe you just... You, you have this, this, this deep wound that you just can't forgive. You can't forgive that person. You can't forgive yourself for what you've done. And Jesus, the invitation right now is to just turn. It's to simply turn to him. I'm going to go and pray for us. We're going to enter into worship. I want to see what Jesus does. So Lord, we come before you. Jesus, I thank you that your grace is so good. There's nothing about us that we can do to change ourselves, but you promise that you give us new life, resurrected life. So we take a second to posture our mind, our heart, our bodies towards you. And that thing that we've been clinging on to for so long, we, we release that. We repent of the ways that we've judged other people and their process too. We just sit before you as ourselves, knowing that we're fully loved. Cultivate us to live into righteousness, to live into grace that you are doing inside of us. And we say yes to your spirit, Jesus. We worship you now.